Welcome to the Chrisman Commentary, Daily Mortgage News Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Chrisman. Topics on today's episode include housing supply, my interview with Planet Homes' James DePalma on the current servicing market and trends in asset management, and reaction to the Fed not raising rates yesterday. Thanks to today's podcast sponsor, Calc. Given that rates are the highest they've been in decades, how can homeowners be convinced to move into a new home? With the trade and mortgage powered by Calc, homeowners can buy before they sell, make non-contingent offers, and tap their home equity to fund the down payment on their next home. The result? Lenders help their clients negotiate a lower purchase price, reduce their interest payments, and eliminate PMI. Limited housing supply has been a problem for years. In 2019, before the onset of the pandemic, there was a shortage of approximately 4 million to 5 million housing units across the U.S. That was due to population growth and job growth outpacing new home construction, and was exacerbated by historically low interest rates during the first year of the COVID-19 real estate boom. The shortage intensified in the last few years after mortgage rates rose due to homeowners unwilling to list and thus give away their locked-in low rates. An economic downturn does not necessarily come in tandem with falling prices, look at the 1970s, but some calming in the economy and inflation will lead to modestly lower mortgage rates and more buyers entering the market. Future home price changes will depend on supply entering the market, and the hope is that home builders will ramp up production and empty commercial buildings will continue to be repurposed into residential units. Certainly, housing affordability is a problem in the U.S. and is transforming the market in ways that could be difficult for home buyers and home builders alike. Tuesday's economic calendar saw housing starts plunge by 11% month over month in August to 1.283 million, marking the lowest level since June of 2020. On a year over year basis, housing starts fell a further 15% and well below the 1.435 million units expected by economists. LOs know that high mortgage rates are clearly taking a toll on builder confidence and consumer demand. As a growing number of buyers are electing to defer a home purchase until long-term rates move lower. Homebuilder sentiment dropped for the second consecutive month and fell below the key break-even measure of 50. What about the near future? Lenders help millions of homeowners with 30-year fixed-rate loans in the threes or lower, and fewer in a rush to exit their current properties. At the same time, Builders are concerned about constructing new homes that buyers may not be able to afford, which has pushed many of them to the sidelines. Student loan repayments are also about to restart, which can be another big setback for millennials who are looking to break into the market. Lack of homes for sale will keep prices high because it means buyers are competing for a limited supply of houses. For today's interview, I wanted to welcome onto the show Planet Homes' James DePalma to talk about the current servicing market and trends in asset management. He's Executive Vice President of Planet Management Group. That's Planet's asset manager, and he's been a trusted partner to investors in real estate-based assets for more than three decades. Sorry to date you, Jim. I invited him to the podcast because he's got a tremendous amount of knowledge about asset management across a lot of asset classes from single family to fix and flip and non-QM. Today, he's going to talk to us about what's going on in bulk and co-issue, how Planet decides what servicing to purchase for its own portfolio, and if we have enough time, some interesting trends he's seeing in asset management. Asset management in this market downturn has been crucial for companies' profitability and, and 
those that want to stay in business or uh, those that want to have any success. And so I'm, I'm very excited to be speaking with you today. And I, I guess I want to start by asking you to characterize the current servicing market. What's going on today versus the past year or so? Sure. Um, I'll, I'll split that question into two components because I think it's very different for subservicing, which is all about the entities doing the work and the operations and the MSR market's all about the flow of capital. So those are kind of two different uh, different channels there. On the subservicing side, you know, the market is very unsettled right now. Um, you have a number of uh, M&A activities going on, consolidation of smaller servicers into larger servicers, you know, like Round Point to Freedom, Rushmore to Mr. Cooper. And then you have a bunch of uh, uh, M&A activity that's, you know, in limbo. You know, the SPL, which was part of the Credit Suisse meltdown uh, that UBS has taken over, you know, that deal is stalled. So the true of SPS is, you know, in question, and they're a top 10 uh, subservicer. You know, SLS, Computer Share, has been trying to sell them. So the whole marketplace and subservicing is very uh, unsettled. It's, there's a, uh, a trend towards consolidation. Um, so you really need to kind of see where that's going to shake out uh, before things, uh, you know, kind of settle down. On the MSR side, um, you know, regions are down, you know, uh, substantially. You know, Fannie Mae only uh, forecasting 1.6 trillion this year. You know, that compares to two and three quarters trillion last year and four and a half trillion the year before. So there's there's uh, a lot of capital chasing too few deals right now. So you know, pricing is uh, is elevated. It's, it's still a seller's market on the MSR side, uh, and probably will continue to be until you know this interest rate environment normalizes. Well, I know at, at Planet over there, uh, you've expanded your servicing portfolio, which uh, is very prudent of you. And I guess I want to ask, what are the benefits to a company that expands its servicing portfolio as you've done recently here? Well, there's two main ones, Robbie. No, number one, you know, and this is this is kind of uh, been around the industry forever, is servicing is a natural hedge, you know, in a low origination environment. So when you're losing money in originations because uh, transaction volume is down, uh, your prepayment speeds are slower. Uh, so the larger your servicing portfolio, the more cash flow it's going to throw off, um, you know, to offset, you know, the losses that you're taking in originations where, you know, your fixed cost structure is larger uh, than the volume that's going through the pipeline. So that's number one would be it's a natural hedge. And secondly, you know, servicing has is, is always been a, a game of scale um, where you can amortize uh, your fixed costs uh, over a larger base of loans. Your, you know, your cost of servicing goes down. So your, you know, your profit margin on the servicing goes up. Um, you know, for example, um, Black Knight, which has, you know, by far the largest uh, share of technology in the industry, they price you know, they're, they're pricing for your system in 100,000 loan plus increments. So the larger your portfolio is, the lower that technology cost uh, gets. So both of those are benefits of, you know, of having a larger and growing portfolio. Well, I guess I have another two-part question here for you. And, and the first part of it would be, 
what's the driver behind all the MSRs being offered right now? And the, the second part here would be what's driving the overall decision to retain servicing in a portfolio versus selling it currently? Well, every firm is different, but there's some common themes, right? So, um, you know, selling servicing, you know, when you sell servicing, obviously when you think it's an overheated market uh, and there's somebody willing to pay more for it than, you know, what you value it internally. So it's opportunistic uh, selling would be one thing driving it. But also, again, back to the lower originations, uh, you know, originators that um, are experiencing lower transaction volume are going to be starving for cash. So it's a really a liquidity play um, where you have servicing rights, which are, you know, tradable assets. It's the first place you go if you're a mortgage originator uh, to raise cash. Um, you know, we've done a, f- a few sales. Um, but again, we only do it when we think the market uh, is uh, overheated, where you've got uh, capital for whatever reason willing to pay more for the servicing than it's worth to us. We're just fortunate to be have the size of servicing portfolio that we have. That, you know, we can be um, you know sellers by choice, not by uh, by necessity. But then, what about the difference between bulk and co-issue? What what are you seeing in the bulk and co-issue markets? Well, it's it's interesting right now. I was just before this interview, I was kind of doing some uh, uh, some interviewing myself with some of our customers. That uh, bulk is actually uh, showing lower multiples right now. It's cheaper uh, than the co-issue market, um, but it, that doesn't mean that it's not worth setting up these co-issue um, relationships. I mean, it it takes time. It takes uh, investment, both in personnel and capital, uh, to set up co-issuing relationships, but the, you know, the predictability and, and the flow of having co-issue uh, arrangements uh, is valuable in the long run. Um, for, for a buyer, um, you know, you're not, uh, you know, you're not waiting for the next bulk deal to come out and then you don't know if the characteristics of that portfolio are going to meet your investment uh, criteria. So you might be you know, looking at deals, you end up either bidding low or you never bid because it doesn't fit your box. So, um, you know, making the effort and the investment in in the co-issue relationships, if you're a long-term buyer of MSRs, is, you know, certainly worth it. Uh, it's been my experience over, over the years. Although right now, you know, it's a tough call because, um, you know, if, if you can get into the bulk market at cheaper prices, um, you know, you can always do a little bit of both, but, you know, I always like the co-issue market for lo- uh, long-term investors in MSRs. And on the sell side, it's the same thing. It's, it's the predictability of that capital being there, knowing what the pricing is going to be uh, and being able to execute, whether it's monthly or quarterly, to meet your liquidity needs as an originator. And just to, to help those that, that may not understand, can you explain the difference between bulk and co-issue uh, servicing very quickly, please? Sure. You know, you know, co-issue is, is, is uh, think of it as a flow contract with the originator where, you know, you agree on a pricing matrix uh, where it's tied to a certain index. So you can, you know, so you have predictability uh, of what the price on, on your loans is going to be on this, the servicing rights associated with your loans is going to be. Uh, and then you flow whether, you know, whether you settle, you know, once a month, once a quarter, Twice a month, all of that can be uh, arranged contractually. 
So there's a real predictability uh, and and both firms are you know contractually obligated to each other uh, in a certain fashion. Um, so that that's the advantages of of co-issue. Bulk market is exactly what what it sounds like. You know, a broker will go out with a package, and you're going to be bidding against you know multiple uh, multiple buyers, uh, and you kind of just have to take uh, those portfolios as they come, uh, whether they fit your investment box or, or not as a buyer. And as a seller, you really don't know exactly where the bids are going to come in, who your counterparty is going to be, and then you end up having to negotiate a contract each and every time. So it's it's a it's a lot more uh, you know choppy than the the co issuance market is. And finally, before I let you go here today, I, I want to talk delinquencies. They've been low for a while, and obviously, COVID forbearance has pretty much been resolved to run its course. But we're seeing a lot of household financial stress, and I imagine that'll get worse. Uh, in the coming months or, or years as we're in this high interest rate environment. So as a servicer, or if someone's using a subservicer, how do you know you're ready for the next delinquency cycle, which is expected next year? Well, I mean, I've been in the industry 40 years. So, I mean, I've seen so many cycles and, you know, unfortunately the industry gets it wrong most of the time uh, when these credit cycles turn around. Um, so, you know, number one, if, if, you are the servicer, or if you have a subservicer that you rely on, the first thing is to ask for a plan, um, a pro forma plan. Is it if and when delinquencies increase X percent? What is your plan as it relates to personnel, recruiting, onboarding of, of personnel? What locations are they going to be in? How are they going to be trained? What's your lead time to get them on board? So you want to you see a plan that can be implemented and is feasible. And I think you want to look at the historical performance uh, in those uh, uh, time periods where delinquencies did increase. How did that servicer do against the MBA statistics, MBA averages, Fannie and Freddie averages? And you may have to go back quite a few years to study it, but it's worth studying to see how that servicer performed uh, in that environment the last time. And lastly, you know, ask for quality control results in their default area. Um, you know, you're contractually uh, have the right to see them. We provide them to our clients uh, as a regular course of business. It's, it's something that we take pride in our QC results. Um, you know, if there's any pushback from your subservicer that they really don't want you to see them, then I mean, that's a trigger that uh, there's a reason they don't want you to see them. But and if you don't have the personnel to interpret them, either hire a consultant or hire the personnel uh, to make sure you have the expertise to know what's going on uh, at your servicer, that they're ready for um, the uh, the change in the cycle. You know, we, we see the warning signs of it now. Delinquencies are still relatively low, uh, but you look at the increase in credit card debt, uh, the inflation problems uh, in the economy. You know, I think in 2024 and beyond, this is gonna be a really important uh, component of of servicing again, James. I I really appreciate you making the time for me today. Obviously, with uh, with all those years in the mortgage industry, and you haven't seen these cycles before, uh, you're able to bring some really good perspective. So, uh, thank you very much, and uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks, Robbie. Turning to rates, bonds ended yesterday on a mixed note in reaction to the Federal Open Market Committee statement for September. 
As expected, the FOMC did not change its benchmark rate range and maintained its projections on the dot plot for one more 25 basis point hike this year. The committee did lower its rate cut projections from 1% to half a percent for 2024, which coincides with the higher for longer narrative. The 2026 projected rate is 2.9% versus the 2.5% long run rate. The GDP outlook increased to 1.5% from 1.1% for next year, and core inflation estimates moved down slightly to 3.7% for next year. Today's economic calendar is busy in terms of data, and we've already had the Q2 current account, jobless claims, which came in down to 201,000 from 221,000, much lower than expected, with 1.662 million continuing claims, and Philadelphia Fed manufacturing, which came in at negative 13.5, down from 12. We've already received, and bond markets are digesting, the latest rate decisions from Sweden's Riksbank, which raised rates 25 basis points, as did SNB and Norges Bank, while the Bank of England left rates unchanged, but signaled further tightening will be required if inflation persists. Later this morning brings the releases of August existing home sales, leading indicators for August, Treasury announcing month-end supply consisting of two five- and seven-year notes before auctioning $15 billion of reopened 10-year tips, and Freddie Mac's latest primary mortgage market survey. We begin the day with agency MBS prices worse a quarter to three-eighths, and the 10-year yielding 4.48 after closing yesterday at 4.35%. The two years up to 5.20%. Let's wrap up with a joke and some housekeeping. A man was pulled over just outside of Savannah by a Georgia State trooper. As the officer approached the vehicle, he noticed a large number of knives in the back seat. Looking at the driver, he asked, Sir, do you have a good reason for needing all those large knives? Smiling, the driver said, Why, yes, I juggle them. Realizing the officer was giving him a skeptical look, the driver said, Sir, with your permission, I'd be more than glad to give you a demonstration. So cautiously, the officer stepped back and said, All right, but you better be telling the truth. A few seconds later, the man was on the side of the road, tossing the knives high into the air with ease, as the police officer watched, mesmerized. Two old men happened to drive by, and both gazed in astonishment. The one looked at the other and said, Sure glad I gave up drinking. These sobriety tests are getting ridiculous. <laughs> Thanks again to today's podcast sponsor, Cal. The trade-in mortgage levels the playing field and empowers loan officers to stay competitive and close more deals. With non-contingent financing, bigger down payments, and the ability to buy and move before selling, Calc simplifies the home buying and selling process for everyone involved. To learn more about the trade-in mortgage and sign up for a demo, head to Calc's website at www.tradeinmortgage.com. If you have any questions about the podcast or sponsoring opportunities, send me an email at robbie at robchrisman.com. Visit robchrisman.com for more information on our industry partners, access to archived commentaries, and how to subscribe to the daily mortgage news and commentary. To listen to or download past episodes of this podcast, search Mortgage News on any platform you get your podcast from.